Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. And we're live. Hey. How are you? Welcome to our studio. What are we getting into today? Today, we are getting into a very crazy story. Indeed. Valuable description that we definitely have not overused in the past. Yeah. Well, this is one story that I feel that description fits. This is one that is pretty hard to imagine. There's a lot of shit that's going to happen. So let's just get into it. Okay. Instead of trying to, like, vaguely summarize. Yeah, let's vaguely summarize and build it up. Yeah, no, I think we'll just start. How about that? This story takes place in Lawrenceville, Illinois. It is your quintessential Midwestern town. It's a rural farming community. There's miles and miles of cornfields. They had three stoplights and less than 5,000 people. It's a friendly and quiet place. Joel Kirkpatrick was a really smart, very kind, and happy kid. Every teacher told his parents he was the smartest kid they'd ever taught. His plan was to be a programmer and video game tester. Hell yeah. And everyone loved Joel. Julie Ray and Len Kirkpatrick, Joel's parents, were married for eight years but divorced when Joel was seven years old. However, one of the only things they could agree on was that they both loved Joel more than anything else. At this time, the plan was for Julie to have Joel for the weekend, but it was Columbus Day and Joel was going to have that Monday off of school, so she asked Len if she could have him for the extra day, and he agreed. That Monday, October 13th, 1997, they had a great afternoon. They went to the park with a blanket and hung out looking at the clouds and the animals. Joel was always very affectionate, and he loved spending time with his mother. They got milkshakes and then went back to their home in Lawrenceville, Illinois. Julie had a ranch-style home in one of the subdivisions in town. That evening, Julie had her friend Trina Woodward and her son over to hang out. Joel and Trina's son watched Aladdin in the living room while Trina and Julie hung out talking about their lives and their dreams for the future. Trina said Julie was always a great host, and she loved going over there to hang out. After a while, Joel said that he wanted to go to bed since he wasn't feeling great. So Julie tucked him in, kissed him goodnight, and she told him she loved him as usual. She made sure she locked the front door, but she has never been able to say for sure whether or not she locked the door coming in from their garage into the kitchen. She went to sleep that night in her bedroom across the hall around midnight. But by 4 a.m., Julie was woken up to a scream. She was really groggy since she had just been woken up, and although the scream didn't sound like Joel, she immediately had a pit in her stomach. She got up and screamed his name, but when she made it into his room, he wasn't in his bed. The next thing she knew, a person with a ski mask jumped across the bed at Julie. He was trying to get out of the house, but the two struggled with each other as Julie tried to stop him from leaving. He broke out the door, but she grabbed onto his leg as he made it outside and was trying to hold on for dear life, but he started hitting her head into the ground. As she lay in the grass, the man turned around, took off his mask, and walked away into the night. All Julie could think about was, oh my god, they kidnapped Joel, because the man was just walking away. All she wanted to know was where Joel was, so she ran to her nearest neighbor's house and pounded on the door. 
Nancy Seed, Julie's neighbor, answered the door. Immediately, Nancy was met by a hysterical Julie standing outside, barefoot, wearing only a t-shirt and her underwear. She was screaming for someone to call the cops. She was wide-eyed, frantic, and had a black eye and rug burn on her knees. She told Nancy and her husband, Mac, that someone had taken Joel and asked Mac if he would please go find him. At about 4.30 in the morning, the neighbors called the police for Julie. Two officers came to the scene. One stayed with Julie, and the deputy went into the house. When he made it back, when he made it to the back bedroom, Joel's room, he found Joel laying in a pool of blood on the floor next to his bed. He was between the bed and the wall, so from the door, he was out of sight. He had a t-shirt on that was covered in blood. Paramedic Don Nash said he saw a hole in Joel's chest, which is when he knew that Joel was already gone. Officers then told Julie that Joel had been killed, but she was still so in shock all she could say was no. She had called to him in the house, and he would have heard her and yelled if he was there, so he wasn't in the house. She told police she'd run into Joel's room after hearing a scream and saw only his empty bed. A man in a ski mask lunged at her, and she struggled with him, chasing him through the house into the backyard, where he slammed her head in the ground before making his escape. Hysterical, she told her neighbor, but although she was consistent with this story, that night investigators observed a very few strange things. But before we get into that, let's talk about 13 years earlier. Julie Ray and Len Kirkpatrick married very young. They were missionaries. They met when they were about 16 years old and got married a month after Len turned 18. Julie was still 17, but her parents signed off on the marriage. They had their son, Joel, very quickly after they were married, only less than a year later. Julie had been pursuing a PhD in educational psychology, and Len was pursuing law enforcement. But by the time Joel was around seven or eight, the two had decided they wanted to get a divorce, like I mentioned, and it was a pretty bitter one. There was a long battle for custody of Joel, but the final decision had been reached only two months before his death. They had joint custody, but Len had won physical custody. And the reason that Len won came down to only the fact that Julie was single and Len had remarried, meaning his home would still be a two-parent home for Joel. And it was no secret that Julie was devastated with that ruling. So police took that as a possible motive. Wait, so what does physical custody mean? Meaning... Len gets Joel the majority of the time, and Julie kind of gets him on, like, the weekends, and that's it. Oh, okay. I don't know how I feel about that, but I, I don't know. It's kind of fucked up that, like, the only reason he got full custody, or not full custody, but, like... quicker? Yeah, because he married another person, and Julie hadn't prioritized that. She was, you know, getting a PhD, and she was a, a busy lady. Yeah, I know, but... That sucks. I guess you kind of have to keep the kid in one place during the school week i mean like unless they're both within the same school district i don't think but i don't know can you just go halvesies i don't know to be honest i'd have to look more into i guess custody rules but i didn't for this right now yeah i don't know man (laughs) but because julie was so upset with this ruling of her only getting joel like on the weekends and stuff like that police thought that because of a lot of other things that looked suspicious in the crime scene and like things we'll get into later they thought that julie had been lying and now they found out this as kind of a possible motive like if i can't have him then nobody can kind of thing yeah i mean i guess you gotta look into everything yeah but it seems like she was not 
Yeah, I do understand, obviously, looking into Julie because she was, you know, the only one there and it would be silly if they didn't look into her. But I also think that the police kind of put blinders on for anything else because they were so stuck on the fact that it was Julie and they didn't really entertain much else. So we're going to talk about that. But yeah, just as a little, I guess, teaser for what's to come. Oh, boy. Yeah. Lawrenceville police were investigating this crime scene, but pretty soon they realized that this was going to be out of their scope, so it didn't take long before the Illinois State Police were called. But what officers found in Julie's home didn't seem to match up with her story about an intruder breaking in and killing Joel. Julie had claimed there had been a terrible struggle with this intruder, but the house wasn't in the condition you would expect after that kind of intensity. The house inside was very neat. There wasn't any overturned furniture, no pictures off the walls, nothing broken, nothing stolen, and no obvious signs of forced entry. So that morning of October 13th, 1997, Julie Ray had officially become a suspect after crime scene technicians came to the conclusion that her story didn't fit the crime scene. Investigators had to tell Joel's father that his son had been stabbed to death. Len decided to go see his son at the funeral home, and when he pulled back the cover, he saw that his son had been stabbed to death, and in that moment, it suddenly hit him that Joel had been killed with a knife that Len had given Julie on Christmas, which was the last gift he had ever given her as husband and wife. Wait, how did he know he was stabbed with that knife? I guess he didn't know for for sure, but he it kind of came to him. He like thought that Julie was the one who did it, and he was like, oh god, it's probably that knife. Okay. I don't know. This theory doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of it is is a bit (laughs) exaggerated. Yeah. Investigators had determined that the murder weapon was a knife from the butcher block in the kitchen. Based on what? It had been found on the floor in the hallway between the two bedrooms. So it was, it was the murder weapon. And it had blood on it? No. His blood? No. But... Okay. <laughs> it was it was the murder weapon. Okay. And the evidence sure. seemed to suggest that it had been placed there and there wasn't any kind of blood spatter around the knife. Which meant this intruder came into the house without a weapon. Which is incredibly unlikely. At least that's what they believed. Not only all of that, but when Julie had run to her neighbor's house that night, she had made some weird comments. As she was with her neighbors, she had a few weird moments where she had almost had an entire personality change. Her neighbors had seen blood on her arms, and she said, You don't need to worry about me. I don't have AIDS. She also looked at Julie's knees, and Julie pulled her legs close to her chest on the couch, and she said, Almost like a child, I have a boo-boo on my knees. Which is really weird, considering Julie had just discovered that her child had been abducted. Or so she thought. Although people respond to shock and trauma in really odd ways sometimes, but this just wasn't looking good for Julie. Okay, but like, I mean, the blood is more concerning to me. Like, she has blood on her arms? The blood on her arms is, I believe, from a wound that she sustained. Okay. So it's her blood. But there is a little tiny bit of Joel's blood on her, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But most of the blood that was found on her, which wasn't much, is mostly hers. Okay, but I mean, I guess the attacker could have, like, put some on her. Yes, transfer stains, And for then sure. you can't, I mean, one comment. Yeah, she was I just, mean, like, can't. acting strangely, which, like I said, people respond to trauma in, like, a bunch of different ways. So it's not like you can really say, oh, because she said that she had a boo-boo on her knees, it means that she killed her son. 
Yeah, I know. That's ridiculous. Also, there's, I don't know, what's the normal way to act? Right, exactly. Nobody nobody really knows. Julie's shirt did have traces of blood on it. It was on the shoulder and the back of her shirt, and DNA testing revealed that it was Joel's blood. Her story didn't have her making any kind of contact with Joel because she said that he had been kidnapped. So now investigators were asking how Joel's blood would have gotten onto her shirt if she never made any kind of contact with him. Easy. A transfer stain. Exactly. Yeah, we we know. Because she she said she was fighting with the intruder who obviously did kill Joel, so he would probably have blood on him who he then could transfer to Julie. But the police are very much, they have blinders on and they say that Julie is the main suspect. So... I don't know how you can do that if there's any evidence of an intruder. There wasn't much. It was a very weird crime scene. I will give them that. Was there no footprints or blood stains from the intruder? Like any trace of another human being? Well... Other than her story? I think it's very possible that they... Like there wasn't any obvious signs of an intruder. And I think because they thought that it was Julie, even from the very beginning, it's possible that they may have missed certain things because they were like, oh, it was Julie and there's no sign of an intruder. So I don't know exactly if there was any kind of thing left there for them to find, but they didn't really find it if it was there. And the more investigators they had looking into it, the more they became convinced that Julie was their one and only suspect. Because the idea that someone would break into a home for no reason, with no murder weapon, kill a kid for no reason, and leave the adult virtually unharmed, and then, as they were leaving, pull off his mask to reveal his identity, didn't make any sense whatsoever. And I agree, that does not sound real, but it is. Yeah, I mean, did the intruder take the mask off to show her his face, or did he just, with his back turned, take it off? I don't think he intentionally did it to show her his face, but she did say that she saw his profile as he was taking off the mask because he like looked back at her and then as he was turning back around, took off his mask and then walked off into the night. So she does have some kind of view of this man. Okay. Yeah. Very strange. It's very weird. Yeah, it's weird, but I mean... It does seem unbelievable. So I do understand why police thought that she was definitely a main suspect, but I think they very much made a mistake in that they didn't search for any other kind of evidence that there could have been another person. Right. So police told Julie to meet them at the police station. And still, Julie thought the police were just doing their jobs, but that's when they told her that they were sure that she did it. Julie had told investigators that she had seen this man's face for only a few seconds as he was walking away once he took his mask off. So she worked with a sketch artist who made a sketch of his profile, but it wasn't much to go off of. She said he was thin, about 5'9 to 5'11, and wearing camouflage pants. So although police fully believed it was Julie, they still put up these flyers to see if anything would come of it. News of Joel's grisly murder completely shocked this small town. This was completely unheard of in this safe community. And of course, rumors began flying about what happened. There was a woman who had sold a Greyhound bus ticket to someone who she felt matched the description. So she called the police and told them that this man was at the bus station. Someone else called in a man wearing camo pants near the train tracks. 
there was also a group of kids at a party that said some other kids had shown up to the party with blood on their clothes and were saying that they had just killed someone. And so everything had just gotten twisted up at that point. People believed... Yo, what? You show up to the party with blood on your clothes and you're like, oh, dude, we just killed somebody. And you think that that's cool? I don't know if that actually happened or not, but people were saying that these kids showed up to a party saying that. So it's it's all, you know. 18 speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim that if people can relate and get comfort from it, if it can help someone, as one of my guests said, there's so much going on in the world. We should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better. Each one is a superhero. Not because they have special powers, it's because in spite of what they've gone through, they keep on going. I find them remarkable. Please listen to Chataholic and hear their stories. Hearsay. Here's, yeah. <laughs> Objection, Objection, Your Honor. Hearsay. Hearsay. Yes. <laughs> so people started believing a group of boys from their local school who were high on meth had broken in and killed Joel. It was just like, there was a lot of rumors flying. Yeah, these are getting a little ridiculous now. But even with all of these leads, the police kept coming back to Julie as their prime suspect. Also, I don't think they were really looking into many, if any, of these leads that rhymed. Sorry, but you know what I'm saying. I don't think they looked into any of these, really. Yeah. She did completely cooperate with the state police and had been interviewed three times by them. She even took two polygraph tests to prove that she had nothing to do with her son's murder. They weren't from the state police. They were from an independent polygraph examiner, and she passed both of them. Also, polygraphs mean nothing. They do, but it was her way of trying to say, hey... I'm willing to take these, I'm going to take them on my own, and I'm going to show you that I have nothing to do with this, because I have nothing to hide. Yeah, I know, but I hate that the polygraph is this big thing. It's just not... Accurate. It's not accurate. Yeah. It's true. But this is all she had really to do. I mean, yeah, I can't blame her for doing it, but... No, of course not. I just hate that it's relied on so much. After fleshing through some of these leads that they had, they were out of all possible suspects other than Julie, which we we know, we've talked about. They only want to see Julie. And the case went cold, even though Julie was still suspect number one. They didn't have really much to, I guess, charge her with yet, but she was still number one. How do they have a murder weapon and a theory, but they can't charge her, but they think it's right? I guess they were waiting to build as much evidence against her as possible because at this point, it's pretty much all circumstantial. There's no really? like... so her prints weren't on the murder weapon? No. Okay. There were no prints. And that doesn't throw a wrench in your theory. Well... I mean, I guess she could have wiped it, but... Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it, it's true. It's all circumstantial. And she's saying that there was an intruder and all this stuff, so they can't say for certain that it's Julie, but she's their number one suspect. Gotcha. But the case completely lagged for years because even though they thought she did it, they didn't have enough evidence to charge her, like I just said. Nobody had been identified. Julie tried to move on with her life. She remarried a man named Mark Harper and she moved to Bloomington, Indiana. She and her family put up a $10,000 reward on the year anniversary of Joel's death to anyone who had any kind of information leading to the killer, but the reward was never paid out. 
She continued working on her PhD, but she knew at any point this investigation on her could pop up again. And three years after Joel's murder in May of 2000, it did. Ed Parkinson, an appellate prosecutor, got the case and he was convinced that Julie was guilty. So he took the case to the grand jury and got an indictment. He was then appointed the prosecutor for the case. Even though all the evidence was circumstantial, he was confident because he said, quote, very few murders are witnessed. So I guess he's like, well, most evidence is circumstantial, but she did it. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Yeah. What kind of prosecutor are you? A very, a very confident, confident one. That's the word. You can't put somebody away for life based on circumstantial evidence. Nope, but he's going to try. Yeah, what a great guy. Yeah. At that point, she had officially been listed in the media as the sole suspect in her son's murder. And although it was all circumstantial, Julie's story seemed to be completely nonsense. The only thing she had was her friend Trina Woodward, who had been at the house earlier that night. And she said that Julie had invited her to stay for the night, which wouldn't have made any sense if she planned on killing Joel. The grand jury handed down two counts of first-degree murder against Julie. There hadn't been any movements on the case in three years, so this was shocking that anything was coming of it. Wait, they convicted her? No, not. they're going to take it to court. Oh, okay. Yeah. There wasn't anything that Julie could do at that point. She was arrested, and before she left, she hugged her family members, still holding on to the belief that the truth would come out and the legal system would prove her to be innocent. <laughs> Which is, prud- it's, which is putting a lot of faith into the U.S. legal system, which is incredibly flawed. Yeah, I laugh because it's... Uh, Justice doesn't always prevail. Yeah, it feels you know? like a naive hope. Yeah, well, she had to hold on to something. You right. Know? It took two years for Julie's trial to get to court. And in 2002, it was determined that Julie's case would take place in Wayne County, Illinois, due to all the pretrial publicity in her hometown. Wait, so is she in prison for two years? jail yeah she's being held without bail if she had bail she didn't post it she was in jail yeah wow i can't believe that all on circumstantial evidence Mm -hmm. that's a crime in itself in my opinion yeah i mean plenty of innocent people are wrongfully you know charged and convicted and held and two years of her life oh more more than that we're gonna get into it yeah more yeah julie had a public defender because she couldn't afford anything else And she was facing all the resources of the state. It was a total mismatch. The prosecution completely denied her story and said the only possible scenario is Julie committing the murder. The fact that this man came to her house for the sole purpose of killing Joel, and he didn't have a murder weapon, and he was wearing a mask, but then he got there and then took off the mask and revealed his identity to Julie, was just complete nonsense. They told the jury that Julie had completely staged the entire scene which honestly wasn't hard to do. There were glass panels on the door that had been broken, but the prosecution pointed out that the glass was on the outside. So they argued that if someone was trying to break in from outside, the glass would have been on the inside of the door, not broken from the inside out. The house was completely neat, and if there had been a struggle down the hallway, through a kitchen, past furniture, something should have been knocked over or broken at some point. The defense tried to say that Julie didn't have any substantial blood spatter on her hands or her clothes, but the prosecution argued that Julie had stabbed Joel through the comforter and sheets, so each time she pulled the knife out, it was wiped clean of blood. 
So a huge part of this case was based off of the expert blood spatter analyst testimony, even though there was so little of it for them to work off of. The prosecution called two bloodstain pattern analysts who assessed that there had been no intruder. The first was Rod Englert, a retired police detective and past president of the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts. He began by performing a lengthy demonstration using theatrical blood to show the jury how different kinds of blood spatter are created. And he explained to the jury how bloodstain pattern analysis shows investigators how to quote-unquote put the pieces of the puzzle together. He concluded that the crime scene had been staged and manipulated and was not consistent with her story of a struggle. His expert opinion was based on both his examination of the evidence and his quote experience of having gone to many many scenes many like this hundreds of scenes. He saw, quote, no indication that there was a third party in this residence. So he's he's like, I've seen all the blood, the blood spatter and many like this. And there's no way that there could have actually been another intruder. I don't know. These absolute statements make me think this sounds like a con man. You know, this is this is something somebody would tell you if like, oh, I'm 100 percent sure I've seen 100 all the scenes. I'm like. You don't think that there's any reasonable doubt here? It just seems kind of silly. But also, I've heard that blood spatter analysis is not like an exact science. Like these people who get trained in it don't actually go to a four-year program. It's it's kind of a certification that you get. Mm. And it's harder to like recreate these. But I mean, I heard that from uh, the people who do the Innocence Project. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not a legal analyst or... Yeah, I can't uh, speak on that, but... I can't speak on it either, but I have heard that it's not something you should convict somebody off of. I don't think it's something that you can use as, like, the sole piece of evidence to convict someone, but I think it's just another piece of the pie that the prosecution can use to convince the jury. And, you know, they're like, oh, the blood says that yeah. that this happened for sure, even though it's not an exact science. But, you know, all you really have to do in a courtroom is convince a jury. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is these people don't understand this. They're just like me. Exactly, and yeah. they're presenting these people as experts when it's not really as clear-cut as they are portraying. Yes. Dexter Bartlett, a crime scene investigator with the Illinois State Police, told the jury that Joel's blood could not have transferred onto Julie's shirt and was more consistent with her wielding the weapon. He offered no proof of this, no experiments, no data, no explanation of the methodology he used to come to these conclusions, but that's what he told them. The expert called by the defense did a test stabbing through comforter and blankets into a cup of animal blood, and although some of the blood was wiped away, there was still a significant amount on the blade, so if Julie did do it, there should have been a lot more spatter on her hands and on her clothes. Yes. <laughs> the... I've been wanting to cross-examine this the entire time, but I've kept my mouth shut. Right. The knife was also a big part because it had been found on the floor in the hallway completely clean with no blood around it. Prosecution said it had to have been placed there since there wasn't any type of spatter, but blood spatter specialist on the defense side said many killers will wipe blood off onto their clothing, so if the intruder did that and dropped it, it would make sense for there not to be any blood around the knife. But 
in the backyard, there were no footprints that would indicate a struggle because the prosecution argued that there was no disturbance in the morning dew. There was like, there was no, there was no pattern of struggle in the dew. Okay. Yeah. So Julie never testified during that trial, which her attorney believed was a smart move, but didn't look too great because the prosecution attacked her character and there was nothing she could do about it. They brought up the messy custody battle and said that she was trying to punish Len. If she can't have him, then nobody can. All of but this- But she could, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead, what? But she could have him on the weekends. This is stupid. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's not the, the best, you know, arrangement for her. Like, she was devastated and it wasn't what she wanted. But also, she very much loved Joel and that was, like, very apparent. And he loved her and there was no- like aggression toward him there was nothing leading up to this that would have pointed to this like it just it doesn't fit you know it's just a very not fit yeah but she just got extremely unlucky in that the crime scene did look weird Mm. and all of this was left up to the jury to figure out the jury didn't deliberate very long at all it only took them about five hours and they found Julie guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 65 years in prison. She was in complete shock and disbelief. The jurors who were on the fence about her guilty verdict said they were pushed over the edge because she didn't get up to testify, which made her look guilty to them. But that was because her attorney told her not to. She wanted to. Bro. I know. Are you kidding me? That's your. That was the big point. Yep. It's kind How of... These... F- that means that there's reasonable doubt. Yeah. There, there's a hundred percent reasonable doubt. Yep. And you just put a mother away for sixty-five years because she didn't testify, which made her look guilty. Yeah. But you're not supposed to look guilty. You're supposed to be guilty. Right. You dumb. F- I'm not happy. I. I mean, like this is basic. Yeah. This I'm... is basic. Mm-hmm. It's very infuriating. I do understand. A few months after the trial, Julie decided she'd give an interview to 2020 because she didn't get a chance to testify in trial and she wanted to testify to show the whole world pretty much who she was and what actually happened. Yeah. Can she appeal? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, she should appeal. But she needed to be looking better in the public eye. So this was her first like move, you know? She was hoping to get her story out there and have someone corroborate it as well. She wanted to know if anyone had any kind of information that would help her prove her innocence. It was a desperate plea for help. John Miller, the man who interviewed Julie, said he had heard he has heard stories from many criminals. And even though you can never completely tell when someone is telling the truth, Julie showed every sign of someone who was being truthful. This 2020 episode was the complete turning point for Julie because although her chances of someone being able to help her were slim, it did happen. One of the people watching 2020 that night was crime writer Diane Fanning. At that time, Diane Fanning was working on her first book, which is about a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells. Anyone remember that name? I do, but I don't remember what case it was for. Crystal Searles. The little oh. girl who got her throat slit. Oh my god. This it's is the serial guy. killer. And if we recall, I said I was going to tell another story involving him, and here we are. This is Tommy Lynn Sells. 
Oh, disgusting. Yeah. So Diane Fanning had been working on a book about Tommy Lincells, who at the time was on death row for attempting to murder two young girls, one of whom survived and lived to tell the tale and get him arrested, a.k.a. Crystal Searles, who we covered in episode 76, if you have not listened. Diane had decided to start writing about Tommy Lincells because of Crystal's incredible story. She had interviewed Tommy Sells a few times, but since then had pretty much become only pen pals with him as a way to keep interviewing him. Can you imagine being pen pals with a serial killer? No. <laughs> that sounds terrible. She was almost completely finished writing her book when she sat down to watch 2020 that night. And she watched as Julie Ray said over and over that she did not kill her 10-year-old boy. After Julie, 2020 interviewed the prosecutor of the case in the same episode, who explained why it must have been Julie. But as Diane listened to his explanation and reasons, like the fact that this murderer didn't bring a murder weapon, Diane remembered that Tommy Sells had done exactly that on more than one occasion. He often didn't bring weapons with him. So after the episode, she sat down and wrote Sells a letter telling him about the episode, but she didn't give him any names, where, or when this murder happened. And when he wrote back, she was completely blown away. Tommy Sells said, quote, about that woman who claims someone broke into her house, was that like maybe two days before my Springfield, Missouri murder, maybe on a 13th? Diane was shocked because Joel was murdered on a 13th. And Stephanie Mahaney, Tommy Lincells's next victim, was murdered on the 15th of that month in Springfield, Missouri. This serial killer on death row, who was a known drifter and confirmed murderer of 11 others across the country, identified the exact date that Joel was murdered. Diane felt that she had justice in her hands and she had to do something with it. The first thing she did was call Texas Ranger Johnny Allen, since he also knew Sells well. And he agreed that it seemed as if it were possible Tommy Sells committed the murder of Joel Kirkpatrick. Diane didn't know what to do, but she included Joel's murder in her book and then published it. When it came out, 2020 got a hold of it and said they needed to get to the bottom of this and interviewed Tommy Sells themselves. Lynn Schur of 2020 walked into that interview and got right to it. She asked if he murdered a boy in Lawrenceville, Illinois, and he said yes. And everything he said about it completely lined up with Julie's story. He even said that he preferred to kill with his bare hands and often didn't bring a weapon when he was going to kill. But he did say that he killed Joel with a knife. He said he was going to cut Julie, but he had already dropped the knife. So he broke out the door, but she followed him, and he hit her head into the ground, and when she stopped fighting, he disappeared. It's exactly Julie's story. He has now corroborated everything that Julie has said without any kind of prompting. His confession sparked new interest in Julie's case, and you'd hope that this confession would be enough to get Julie out, but it didn't work like that. No, it never does. Illinois Innocence Project took up Julie's case to try and find any evidence that could link him to Joel's murder. And you just talked about the Innocence like, Project. These are the people I'm talking about. They do great work, but they work on cases like this where people are wrongfully convicted. And sometimes people are on death row for crimes they didn't commit. Yeah. And something like DNA evidence will completely remove them as a suspect. But prosecutors will 
suppress that evidence to, I don't know. Get a bad guy? Yeah, in their mind, get a bad guy. It furthers their career because they got a conviction. Right. It's, it's really disgusting, but right. these people do really good work. Which is great, and now Julie's case is in their hands. The prosecutor for Julie's case argued that Tommy Sells would confess to any murder, but he had so many details. Tommy Sells had said that the house was brick, which was also accurate. Like, it was just little details like that, and the fact that he broke out the glass from the inside out, which was a big thing on the prosecution side. They're like, why would the glass be on the outside if he was trying to break in? Like, he corroborated everything. Bill Clutter is a PI that investigates wrongful conviction cases. So he went to Lawrenceville and started asking questions around. One of the key pieces of investigation for him was placing Tommy Sells in that area at that time. Julie's mother told him he should pay attention to the Greyhound bus ticket agent who said she sold a ticket to a man that matched the description that Julie gave. Do you remember when I said that? Yep. Yeah. Sandra Worth told him that he struck her as odd coming in and needing a ticket right away, and he was looking nervous. He wanted a ticket to Winnemucca, Nevada. And so she remembered him because they don't sell many tickets to Winnemucca, Nevada. <laughs> That's a fun fun thing to say. Winnemucca, Winnemucca. Nevada. <laughs> no Bill, wonder she remembered it. Right. Bill Clutter then remembered that he had seen Winnemucca, Nevada in Diane Fanning's book, Through the Window, about Tommy Lynn Sells. In her book, it said on December 13th, 1997, the Texas Rangers put Tommy Lynn Sells in Winnemucca, where he transferred buses to St. Louis, which was his hometown and where his mother lived. The bus ticket agent said that the man told her his mother was sick and he needed to get to her. The state police had detectives board this bus, but the person that had bought the ticket wasn't on the bus, which meant that he got off in St. Louis where he traveled to Springfield, Missouri and killed Stephanie Mahaney only two days later. So this is like very much putting the pieces together of this puzzle, which led Bill Clutter to the tip that had been given to police from Alan Berkshire. Three days before Joel Kirkpatrick's murder, Friday, October 10th, 1997, Alan Berkshire was at the Lawrenceville drive-in with his son eating dinner. A man walked into the diner, looked around, and kind of looked disoriented. Either high or drunk, is what Alan said. He sat down at the bar in front of the booths and started talking to Alan. He told him he was from St. Louis and asked if he was sitting with his son. Alan told him he was. It was his youngest son. And this man tapped him on the shoulder and said, Quote, I bet you're afraid of me, aren't you? And then he did a weird kind of evil laugh and said, quote, Well, I guess everybody ought to be afraid of me. Ominous. Yeah. Alan had a good 45 minutes to look at this man, which is why when Julie's description came out, he was able to say he most likely encountered this man. He also observed him leave the diner and walk south along the railroad tracks, which was in the direction of Julie's neighborhood. Alan had gone to police at that time to report this drifter at the diner, and the deputy who listened to his story never documented it or looked into it. People. Yep. People, come on. Bill Clutter then compared the similarities between Julie's story and Tommy Lincells' interview, which was almost everything. He said he got the knife out of the butcher block. Julie had said the man backhanded her outside, and six years later in Sells' interview, he said the exact same thing. Those details 
He couldn't have just guessed. But people still wanted to know why this man would just target a child and not kill the adult as well. Tommy Sells had shifted away from attacking adults after attacking a woman named Fabian Witherspoon. She also survived Tommy Lynn Sells. When Fabian was 19 years old, she encountered Tommy Sells holding a sign saying, Hungry will work for food. And he showed her pictures of three young kids and told her that we were hungry. So Fabian took Tommy home and started making him a big bag of food, but Tommy went into the drawer and pulled a knife out and then on her. He brought her into the bathroom and told her to start doing things, but Fabian said she decided in that moment she wasn't going to do anything but fight. There was a ceramic duck on the back of the toilet, and she grabbed the the duck and hit him hard over the head with it, and that's when she gained control of the knife and started stabbing Tommy as much as she could. Fuck yeah. Pretty badass. After that, she felt something hard come down on her head, and that's the last thing she remembers before she woke up. She, of course, went to the police because he had told her his name. Let me guess. They don't believe her. No, not this time. But it's still not going to be very good. When they found him, he had stab wounds all over him, and this ended in Tommy serving five years in jail. Yay. They did it. They did it, but five years? Well, God, better than nothing, right? Which he finished in 1997, only a few months before the murder of Joel. Okay. When he got out, he decided he'd never attack someone the same size as him, which led him to only attacking the most vulnerable, a.k.a. children. All this overwhelming evidence connecting Tommy Sells to Joel's murder had people hoping that this would be enough to set Julie free. A year before Julie's exoneration, the National Academy of Sciences had released a report that called into doubt the reliability of bloodstain pattern analysis. Practitioners' conclusions were often, quote, more subjective than scientific and open to context bias. It said, quote, some experts extrapolate far beyond what can be supported. The uncertainties associated with bloodstain pattern analysis are enormous. Can we say... I was right. <laughs> Can we rewind that? Can we roll it back? I was right. Right. Thank you. After two years in prison, Julie did get a second chance, but it had nothing to do with Tommy Sells. Surprisingly, there had been a technicality that set aside her conviction. A what? There was a technicality in the case. It had nothing to do with Tommy Sells' con- uh, confession. I mean, this is some bullshit that this is what it took, but I'm also glad that it happened, you know? I mean, uh uh-huh. Right. I don't know. I mean, I'm glad she's out, but the fact that this entire thing was corroborated and then it isn't looked at again. Right. Insane. I know. And her family, because of this, was able to bail Julie out of jail for $75,000. That's a lot of cash. That's a lot of cash, especially in like 2002, but she had been in jail this whole time. I know, that's... Yeah. That's crazy to me. Or it probably was in 2002. It was probably a couple of years after this. Yeah. Okay. So prosecutor Ed Parkinson pressed for a second trial. In 2006, this second trial had to be pushed back and moved again due to publicity surrounding her case, but happened in Carlisle, Illinois. But this time, Julie was ready. And with the help of the Innocence Project, she was able to make the best defense team. 
The lead defense attorney was Ron Safer, who at one point had been a federal prosecutor and had worked with one of the most prestigious law firms in Chicago. From a prosecution standpoint, nothing changed. So that's good. But the defense in the second trial talked about the bad police work that had been done. The police had decided so quickly that Julie had done it, they didn't go to any length to try to find out if she had been possibly telling the truth. They said there was no evidence of an intruder, but they didn't investigate for an intruder because their main suspect lived in the house. They didn't properly fingerprint things and look further into anything else. They also held up the sheet Joel had been stabbed through for a photo, which would have destroyed any evidence of hair or fibers from Tommy's cells that could have fallen off. So they disturbed the crime scene. Wait, a picture destroys DNA evidence? No, not the picture, the holding up of the blanket. Like, they didn't leave it where it was and, like, properly investigate it. They held up the blanket to take a picture of it, but that would have shaken off any kind of hair or fibers or anything like that. Right, Because they weren't looking for that. Part of the prosecution's case in the first trial was there was no disturbance in the dew in the backyard, which meant there were no footprints, a.k.a. no intruder. But this time around, Julie's second husband, Mark Harper, and some students did a clear investigation into that and found that meteorologically, at that time and temperature, there would not have been dew on the ground to disturb. That's pretty sick, if you ask me. Right, wait, it was in like, it was at like four in the morning. Yeah, it was really, really early. And they did like meteorological, hello, that's a really hard word to say, tests and found that there was no dew on the ground to disturb. That's that's really smart. But yeah, I guess maybe it forms at like a later time. Yeah, and they found that, so that's great. The blood spatter was also used again because there had been blood spatter on the walls, posters, and all around the room, but none of it was on Julie, other than the bit on the back of her shirt, but that very easily could have been a transfer from Tommy Sells. Yeah, you wouldn't get it on the back if she stabbed him. Exactly. And of course, the biggest difference between the first and second trials were that someone had confessed, obviously. Julie had scrapes on the top of her feet she got from being dragged through the grass. She had a huge black eye, and all of her injuries lined up with her and Tommy Sells' stories. But the prosecution still wasn't buying any of it. They were so aggressive with their tactics i don't know their arguments like i mean and i guess that's their job to like be as confident and aggressive as possible but like goddamn you're gonna send away an innocent woman yeah literally yeah so i don't know there has to be some room for like oh we fucked up yeah no they never they never admit that they from start to finish they are like julie did it and they stand by that and even sadder than that Len agreed with them. Len thought that Julie did it. Wow. Yeah. Julie had described her attacker as a young boy in his teens, around 140 pounds. And although at the time Tommy Sells was in his early 30s, he was 130 pounds and looked young. He definitely could have been mistaken for a younger person, especially at that weight. And it was dark, you know? Tommy Sells did recant parts of his story, He didn't have everything perfect, but the things he did know were telling. And he killed a lot of people, so of course he doesn't remember every detail of all of them. Lastly, at the second trial, Julie testified. 
The jury got to hear not only her description of what happened, but how much she loved Joel. And because of all of this, the jury took 12 hours to deliberate, twice as long as the first, but they came back with the verdict of not guilty. And Julie collapsed. It was finally over. Or so she thought. Despite her acquittal, she soon discovered that she had to keep living under the weight of suspicion. Prosecutors in the case still spoke of her like a criminal. Edwin Parkinson, the lead prosecutor in her case, told reporters, quote, The jury found her not guilty. They did not find her innocent. Despite intensive therapy, her faith, and a service dog to help ease the effects of her PTSD, Julie was struggling. She also had trouble finding a job, knowing her previous conviction could surface one way or another. So she was very upfront with prospective employers saying, quote, after the person interviewing me picked up their jaw off the floor, the job would be offered to someone else. This poor woman. She definitely struggled. However, the state of Illinois did give Julie a certificate of innocence in 2010. So that's something. But even after that, she still had a lot of trouble. Tommy Sells was executed. However, he was never convicted of Joel's murder. But I mean, he did, you know, get executed for his other crimes. So I guess there's some justice in that, but... He wasn't convicted. Yeah, never for Joel's murder. Since all of that, Julie has become an advocate for women who feel they were wrongfully convicted and works with organizations to help prove their innocence. And unfortunately, I don't have a ton of information about where she is today or what she is doing other than that. But that is the insane story and survival of Julie Ray. Wow. I mean, I really hope that she found a, a good paying job yeah. at this being an advocate for women. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, this is... I heard about the Innocence Project on a, on a podcast. And yeah, if you go look at some of the cases that they cover, like this one, it's so insane the lengths prosecutors will go to to stick to their story, and then put someone in jail. Yeah. I mean, just like swayed by no evidence whatsoever. But I mean, you made the point that it's their job, but just on a human level, something that's completely disqualifying just won't even matter to matter them. To them. Yeah. yeah. I honestly can't understand why that lead prosecutor, even after Tommy Sells, like, gave such a, like, detailed descript- or detailed confession, and after all of the evidence had been kind of, like, debunked in a way, he was still so vocal about, like, her being guilty. I and, mean, he destroyed her life, really. I, yeah, he did. And the state of Illinois even gave her, like, the certificate of I- innocence and stuff like that to try and help, but it, like, didn't do much, you know? Yeah. I guess it's, like, good for her, I guess, view in the public eye. But also, like, it's it's just rough, you know? Yeah. And not only... I mean, obviously, we're, we're talking about how tragic it is that she had to go through this, like, really messy, terrible trial and, you know, whatever. But at the end of the day, she lost her son. And that, in itself, is an absolute tragedy. This mm-hmm. woman has been through it. And it just sucks. Like, there's there's not much about this story that is redeeming, you know, or, or good in any way. I mean, at least she's still alive and has a job. Yeah, she's, like, and doing... And has a new husband. She's doing what she can with what she's been dealt. And, like, she's 
trying mm-hmm. to make as much positive change with what she's been dealt. And that's really admirable and good. But like, goddamn, you know? Yeah. My heart know, goes out to her. Truly. And her family. I mean, seriously. But anyway, I guess that's enough about that. Sorry, it was kind of a heavy one. But I did want to yeah. talk about, you know, the other survivors of Tommy Sells. Because like, he sucked. Yeah. And I the mean... survivors are really good. So... Yeah, their stories should be told. Definitely. And that's why we're here. Yeah. Anyway, let's have a bit of a palate cleanser. What is your good thing? My good thing is that we sat in the park today and had a nice day out. It was a nice really sit. beautiful. Yeah, it was. A nice sit. Yeah. So just real simple. Yeah, got some work done in the park. If you have to do work on your laptop, you might as well do it outdoors, you know? Amen. Yeah. And you know what? We batched episodes for y'all. We did. That's actually going to lead very well into my good thing. Thank you so much. My good thing is that I have been working very hard to, I don't know, get these, these stories researched and recorded and edited and like ready for you guys. And I'm able to now kind of like take a breath because I did it. And, um, now I get to like enjoy a little bit of time. I mean, not that I don't enjoy doing this because obviously I find these things very interesting, but I'm I'm excited to like rest a little bit. It's been kind of a, a, a marathon. Uh, and this week was like kind of a, a full sprint and I, I've reached the end. Yep. So that's cool. Um, yeah, but thank you guys so much for listening. I mean, hell, if you weren't here, what would I be doing with my time? Not much. For real. <laughs> so anyway... Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like some ad-free bonus content, a bit of community, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to share with us, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. 